New Year's resolutions. It is the Sunday after Christmas, the Sunday before the New Year. We've all made New Year's resolutions. We've all broken them. Why is it so difficult to make a lasting change? In 2012, Time Magazine put out a list of the top 10 most commonly broken New Year's resolutions. Let's see, I have the top five here. Let's see if you are considering any of these for 2016. Number five, getting out of debt or saving more money. Number four, eating healthier. Huh? A little stir in the crowd. Number three, learning a new skill. <coughs> number two, quitting tobacco. And the number one, most commonly broken resolution. I'm sure you can guess it. Getting in shape, losing weight. All right, now, that was easy, but congratulations. All right, you're all going to win Family Feud. <laughs> this particular resolution is probably the primary reason that we have seen over the last two or three years an explosion in the market for wearable technology. They're, they estimate that by 2018, the market for wearable technology, Garmin's, Fitbits, and the like, Apple Watches, will be $12.5 million in the U.S. alone. No doubt, this is a big business, trying to make a change. Yet, despite the fact that I can now track my heart rate, the steps that I've taken, the calories that I've burned, and it'll give me all these nice statistics and graphs, the most important statistic is I'm still more likely to fail and making this change than to succeed. Interestingly, on Time Magazine's list of 10 resolutions, eight of them refer to things that we do. Odds are, when you're thinking about improving your life or making a change, you're thinking about things you want to do or not do. And that's because when we think of change, we think primarily externally. But hear what Jesus has to say about externalities from Matthew 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. <sighs> really, Jesus? Can you even say that? That's the kind of thing I would expect to hear at, I don't know, like a Republican presidential debate. Not, not in a church, not, not in a synagogue. You are like a freshly minted mausoleum on the outside, meticulously crafted floral arrangements and calligraphy carved by uh, uh, artisans from in, in, in Italian marble. But on the inside, there's nothing more than the stench of rotting flesh. Okay, show of hands. Who here has handled rotting flesh? Ah, very nice. So I don't have to tell you what it smells like. A strange mix of sweet and sulfur, like curdled milk and rotting eggs. And it lingers. Have you ever smelled something so bad that you wanted to brush your teeth? <laughs> or take a shower? Well, it's like that. That's what Jesus thinks of us when we clean up our behavior, but we neglect our hearts. Well, if outward change isn't the answer, then what? 
In this same passage, Jesus says this. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. First clean the inside of the cup, and then the outside will also be clean. I have three questions that I want us to ponder today that primarily come from a book that we've been reading by an author named Tim Chester. He's a pastor from the UK. And here are his questions. Well, his book is called You Can Change. You should check it out. It's pretty good. But here are the questions. Number one, what changed? Number two, why changed? Number three, how changed? Number one, what changed? Change what you love, not what you do. Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Titus. This is a pastoral letter written by the Apostle Paul. It's a letter of encouragement and exhortation. He gave it to his um, assistant, Titus, if you will, one of the uh, men ministering with him. And Titus carried this letter to a church in the city of Crete. This passage that we're looking at in particular is the culmination of a section devoted to right doctrine and is a critical statement about the intersection of what we believe and how we should live. So I'm going to read it for us again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own, his own possession who are zealous for good works. First question, what changed? What is your agenda for change? What is your resolution? Be careful before you answer. What does our text teach us about God's approach to change, God's agenda. In verse 11, Paul writes that God's grace has appeared. The initiating agent is always God. And via his grace, he has brought us salvation. Then he is training us, first, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, second, to live lives that reflect his own character. In addition to saving and training, God is redeeming us redeeming us out of lawlessness. And finally, he is purifying us, purifying us to change what we love. God is moving us from a love of ungodliness, our old life, toward a love of good works, our new life in Christ. Aha, you say. There it is. Greg, why don't we skip all this pretense? Paul ends the section talking about works, what we do, and ultimately that's all that he's concerned about, right? Isn't this just another sermon that's telling us to clean up our act? Wrong. Notice that even though Paul does mention good works, it is not the working of works with which he is primarily concerned. It is our emotional disposition towards good works. Previously, before Christ, we were emotionally committed to the world, to worldly pursuits, to doing things our own way. Now, we're committed to godliness and to good works. God's goal is not simply good works, as if we could log a couple hours at the 
pantry or the food shelter. God's goal is zeal for good works, a heart matter. Tim Chester says it like this. God's agenda for change is for us to become like Jesus. C.S. Lewis once said this, or once wrote this. If we consider the unblushing promises of rewards and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, while infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So apparently C.S. Lewis thinks that your New Year's resolution is lame. You're not thinking big enough. You're not ambitious enough. So while we make plans to drink less, which was number 10 on Time Magazine's list, tame our urges, achieve more at work, God is offering us the transcendent. A now possible impossibility, that is, the opportunity to become a new being, to be changed into his likeness. But us, we settle for behavior modification, like slapping a new coat of paint on the building. God wants to recreate us. Recreate us into that which we were always meant to be. He wants to tear out the foundation and build the whole building new. Our change is not ambitious enough. We are far too easily pleased. So, change what you love, not what you do. Henry Skogel, another uh, Christian theologian, has been quoted with this statement. The worth and excellency of a soul is measured by the object of its love. Stated more plainly, the value of a person is measured by what he loves. So if I love chaos and anarchy, well, that tells you something about the state of my soul. But if instead I love peace and harmony and I sacrifice myself for the good of others, well, that tells you something quite different. If we take this to its logical conclusion, which men who are far wiser than I have already done, we conclude that God is the most valuable person because he is infinitely and totally committed to all that is morally right and pure. That, my friends, is holiness. And the greatest distance between you and I and him is not what we do, but what we love. Our problem is that we love lesser things. And the only real hope that we have is to fight this battle at the level of the heart at the level of our desires. When we cease to love lesser things and instead love God, the most valuable thing, we finally begin this journey properly. So you'll notice that Paul says that we should renounce ungodliness. That is, formally declare our abandonment. You can't, you can't renounce a thing that you love. Then at the end of verse 14, Paul tells us that Christ is purifying for himself people who are zealous for good works. Are we going to become zealous just by cleaning up our behavior? 
If you stop cursing and drinking and smoking, will that produce a love of virtue in your heart? Not likely. I'm sure none of you have argued with your spouse and let your emotions rise up, but in the heat of that moment, if you walk away and count to ten so you can gather yourself, is that going to make you desire harmony and flourishing in your marriage? It might stop you from calling the cops. If you cancel your internet service, you quit procrastination and, and porn and social media, is that going to jumpstart a zeal for holiness? I doubt it. Paul is tapping into this here in verse 14. He tells us that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people zealous for good works. Here we are saved not from sinful actions, but from sinful desires. From the word lawlessness in English, the, the suffix ness tells us that he's talking about the state of, a state of our hearts in which there is rebellion against God. We are saved from a lawless state, a rebellious heart, spiritual anarchy. Simply put, our flaw is in our hearts. That's why changing behavior will always fail. Change what you love, not what you do. Second question, why change? We should change for the increase of God's glory rather than our own. Think back to a time in your life when you were desperate for change. What was your motivation? For most of us, Change is our path to impressing others. That's why social media has become so popular. These days, whenever someone makes a new goal or hits a milestone in their plan, you can't avoid hearing about it. Facebook updates, tweets, Instagram posts, Snapchats, iPhone notifications. The web has become an endless barrage of people updating me on the silly details of their mostly meaningless accomplishments. <laughs> Look, I baked a pie. I knit a scarf. I ran three miles. I lost six pounds. I saved world hunger. In most instances, we're trying to impress someone, be it God, our family, or ourselves. But maybe impress isn't the right word. We're simply trying to prove ourselves, to create a plausible reason for love, respect, for our existence. Not sure if any of you guys are Rocky fans. Personally, I couldn't stomach a Rocky movie since Rocky IV with Ivan Drago. It's a great movie. It's a great movie. Ah. But I let a friend talk me into watching the, uh, the latest reboot of the series, Creed. And if you've watched the trailers, you can kind of figure out what's going on there. Um, the son of Apollo Creed decides he's going to get into the ring and start to fight. You know, first he's taking up his father's legacy, but then eventually it becomes a quest to break free from the shadow of his father, and forge his own path. The plot is both a compelling story and, well, frankly, it's a common one. A down-on-his-luck kid from the streets embarks on a quest to bring meaning to his life. This motivation, however, isn't plainly stated until the end of the film. There's a scene at the, in the climactic uh, point of the movie where a beaten and bruised Adonis is counseled to quit the fight. Oh, you've, proven, you've done enough, you've proven yourself, whatever. And defiantly, 
of course. Donnie refuses to quit, and he proclaims, I need to prove I'm not a mistake. Oh, you can feel it. The fire in his belly. And there you have it, a young man motivated to prove his worth through achievement. But this resonates with us because we understand those questions, those questions that haunt him and haunt us. In the middle of the night, do I matter? Am I worthy of love, of respect? We're all looking for the same reassurance. And we, too, turn to achievement. Adonis needs to prove himself to himself to the world. And many Christians, well, we spend our lives the same way. We believe rightly that we've been saved by this lavish grace, but then mistakenly that we could gain God's favor through our right actions, through our obedience. We even try to make bargains with God. God, I'll never do this again if you'll just, if you'll give me this, then I'll But this sort of self-justification derails God's process for change. Let's return to the passage. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 13, we know that God's grace is the initiating event, and our activity is a response to that grace. Verse 13 explains and reveals the motivation, the why. We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Throughout the scriptures, we, the recipients of God's grace, are encouraged to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. In 1 Peter, he puts it this way. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed when Christ returns. For the biblical Christian, we have had a foretaste of heavenly pleasure in the grace that God has given to us. A grace so deep, so rich, so wonderful that it verges on the scandalous. Our appetites now wet. We long to sit at the table of the Lamb and complete the meal, savoring his glory, his manifold moral perfection. Fully known, fully loved, without fear or shame, because perfect love casts out fear. We know the truth that God is magnificent, yet everywhere we look, we see the contrary. A denial of God's glory all around us, it should grate on us like fingernails on the chalkboard of the soul. We should be anxious to see God's glory fully displayed. If our motivation for change is not rooted in this and eager expectation to see and to be the glory of God in the world, we are doomed before we begin. If God is not at the center, then man is at the center. And that, my friend, is the very definition of idolatry. The exaltation of a created thing to the position that God alone deserves. 
We are doubly doomed because when we pursue our own glory instead of God's glory, there are only two outcomes. Either we will succeed and we will become more self-absorbed, self-promoting, and self-aggrandizing, or we will fail. And we will be crushed by the weight of placing our self-worth and our value on something so fragile as human accomplishment. But the faithful believer has the greatest assurance of all. Because the sweeping arc of history does not revolve around you or me, but around Jesus Christ, the triumphant king. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. There is a predetermined and guaranteed progression to history, and the final chapter has already been written. We are the ones who must change. We must align ourselves so that our success and his success are one and the same. Because his success is already secured. The world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God will live forever. Why change? Change for the increase of God's glory, not your own. Third, how change? Change by the Spirit, not by your effort. I mentioned earlier that when we think about change, we inevitably think of ourselves as the primary change agent. Not only is it ingrained in our psyche, but it's all around the culture. Join me if you know this one. I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways. And no message could have been any clearer. If you want to make the world a better place, you take a look at yourself and make that change. <laughs> Woo! Woo! You know, a little... Okay. And if you listen to the outro of the song, this is what you get. I'm going to make a change. It's going to feel real good. Come on. You got to do it yourself. But when it comes to change, the scriptures tell us that we are the object of change, not the agent of change. And frankly, we don't like that. We want to be the star of the show. I mean, that's why I dance for you. <clears throat> but the Bible is not first and foremost our story. It's God's story. Don't get me wrong, God has certainly invited us into his story. But Jesus Christ is the central figure of human history. And in the Bible, God takes top billing. He is the agent of change. And it is his power working on us that produces this change. So what is our role? Well, it's not as simple as God's work alone or our action in isolation. In verse 12, Paul explains that the grace of God is training us, which means that after God initiates this process, we have a task to do. No one trains for nothing. Training is not an end in itself. Rather, we train in preparation for action. In Corinthians, Paul writes, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. 
God is training us for victory. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright lives. I still remember something that Brian Mowry said probably four years ago. Glad he's not here. He'll never know I said this. God doesn't simply save us from our old life. He saves us to a new life. Verse 12 confirms this. There is a movement renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions moving towards an upright and self-controlled, blameless life. Now, I'm going to be honest with you guys. A text like this is not easy to come to terms with. In addition to the things we've already mentioned, it assaults my deeply held notion that I am of utmost importance, that I am powerful, that I am at the center of my life. It also makes a complicated process change sound simple, maybe too simple. If change was as easy as just turn from the bad and turn towards the good, well, we'd all be doing it. In fact, we'd all be done doing it because we would have done it and we'd be perfect. In fact, I worry a little bit when I was preparing this message that about half of us disengaged completely once I started talking about change. Preaching change can be alienating if people believe that they've already tried and failed. So here's a confession from my own life. My mom is here. She can testify. All right. When I was a child, I was a very disciplined person. I was the kid who came home, did the same thing every day. I'd walk in the house. I'd make myself a sandwich. I'd watch an episode of Batman, the animated series. And then I would do all the homework that I had to do. I mean, my thought process was simple. If you want to be a good person... You follow the rules. It's what you do. If you want to save money on car insurance, you call Geico. It's what you do. (laughs) The world was black and white. When I became a Christian, that rote approach transferred to my devotional life. It was very effective at making me look spiritual to people. I was a closet legalist, an inward Pharisee. I read the Bible, I memorized scripture, I went to the youth group retreats, I learned the doctrine, and the more I learned, the more I suffered. Because guilt and anger were always simmering under the surface. Primarily, guilt over sin and anger at myself because I couldn't change. I couldn't break free from sin. Now, pornography was my voice of vice of choice, okay? But that's not really germane to the story. It's just honest. I found more rules to follow. Following rules worked at school. It worked in sports. It's got to work with God, right? If you want to beat sin, you read a Christian book about it. It's what you do. So I read those books, and I put their strategies to work. Accountability partners, confession, fasting, behavior modification. But I continued to stumble. And the disconnect between my external life And my internal life haunted me. I knew I was a fraud because in my heart, I loved sin. I believed it when sin claimed that it could satisfy me. And when it couldn't satisfy me, I wanted to believe that sin could satisfy me. Because sin puts me in control. I can have it whenever I want it. 
Why couldn't my righteous spiritual effort and discipline win the war over sin in my heart? The Apostle Paul had a warning for me. In his letter to the Colossians, he says this. These religious practices have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Ooh, burn. That was it. More rules, more how-to books, more strategies. They're not the solution to the problem. If you simply bottle up the sin nature with walls, it will seep through the cracks. The old man is not to be overwhelmed with willpower, but rather to be disarmed by God's power. Most of you know that in my day job, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. Thank you, Dylan. Don't, I mean, well, okay. I'm regularly asked to see patients in the hospital with potential bone infections. Now, most of them, they show up, they've got redness, they've got swelling, they have a normal x-ray, so we're not really sure what's going on. And nine times out of ten, there isn't even a deep bone infection for me to do, deal with. But for the sake of the one, I always get called. Now, personally, I hate treating this problem. All right? It's not interesting. It's not sexy. It's not glamorous. It's, well, it's gross. Remember what I said earlier about rotting flesh? It's kind of like that. Just suffice to say, the patients with a deep bone infection aren't going to get better without surgery. You can treat the skin redness, you can treat the swelling, you can give them antibiotics, you can do whatever you want, but if they really have a deep bone infection, you're not going to get anywhere. Spiritual growth is the same way. Sinful actions are just the redness and swelling. Symptoms of the real problem. A lawless heart is a deep-rooted problem. An infection in the spiritual bone, if you will. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup, and then the outside will also be clean. Later in the same letter to Titus in chapter 3, Paul addresses this process of cleaning the inside of the cup. We call it sanctification. He writes, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. A regenerated heart is one in which the old masters have vacated the throne and God is now at home. The key to heart changed. Only God can change the heart. So once again, we are robbed of our false sense of importance in this process of change and we are forced to acknowledge our dependence on God. God initiates with his grace and he empowers by his spirit. So is there anything we actually can do? What is our responsibility? Well, I've got three thoughts on that. First, Paul ends chapter two of Titus with this exhortation. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. I encourage you to do likewise. We must declare these things, but most importantly, to ourselves. Like I said before, my biggest problem is that I want sin to satisfy me. 
In those moments when I choose sin over obedience, I'm saying that I don't believe that God can satisfy as well as sin can. But Jesus said, the work of God is this, to believe in the one in whom he has sent. We must relentlessly preach the gospel to ourselves and apply it to our hearts. Only in this way can our worldly loves be supplanted by holy affections. We must relentlessly preach the gospel to ourselves. Second, choose a change project that is worthy of God's power. Paul tells us we have access to every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Are you going to spend your life on nice, neat improvements like slimming your waistline and fattening your wallet? Or do you want to do something transcendent in 2016? I would love to see New Year's resolutions from Jubilee Church that's, that were like this. Grace before judgment. Forgiveness for my frenemies. More generosity. Hashtag peacemaker at Jubilee STL Church. Third, fight for change at the heart level. Don't make the mistake of cleaning the outside of the cup. In fact, right now, pick your vice. Think about the competing virtue. Now, consider how Christ embodies that virtue, not just as an example to be followed, but as the very embodiment, the very expression of the thing that you most need the change that you most want. As you meditate on Christ as the perfect expression of the thing you need to love, you will come to see his glory in a new way. As you savor him, you will see the desire in your heart for his character to be reproduced. So if you're angry, think about how Christ hung on the cross for you. And when people spat in his face and hurled insults at him, he turned his face towards heaven and he cried out for them. If you're impatient, think about how he stood on his weary legs day after day to care for the lost and the sick, desperate for something, someone to touch them. Don't just go and do it because he did it. Wait until you long to do it because he did it. Sanctification comes when we turn from loving the world and we come to love God. Love his attributes, love his character, love his will. Then and only then, true change can occur. The simple message of this sermon and of Tim Chester's book is this. Change takes place in our lives, when we turn to see the glory of God in Jesus. We see the glory of Christ as we hear the gospel of Christ. Moral effort, fear of judgment, and sets of rules can't bring lasting change. But amazing things happen when we turn to the Lord.